0: Well, here in Revelation 7, 8 and 9 we've got these uh, descriptions here of, of angels at work and we've got prayers being offered and angels doing things uh, angels in heaven standing round about the throne and then angels uh, doing thing, things on the earth etc and this is really classic revelation, classic apocalypse and the whole point of Revelation, as we have it, is to sort of continually give encouragement to those who were suffering, particularly in the first century, and I've suggested in previous talks, that all this has some future application. In fact, its main fulfillment is, I suspect, still future. And therefore, we have a situation in Revelation that is expanding upon the Olivet Prophecy. And I mentioned before that the, uh, the seals and, and the trumpets, a lot of the language here is picking up what's in the Olivet Prophecy, which was predicting the destruction of, AD, of the Temple in AD 70 and the coming of Jesus. That was, I've said, potentially possible then. But I've said that because various preconditions were not met, therefore that day was, was delayed until, we hope, our last days. And so the situation in the three and a half years just prior to AD 70 is what I think Revelation is is about, and I've mentioned before that the book is continually alluding to the Jewish feasts, the three main feasts, and there's these feasts cycle through through the book of Revelation, Um, and you can... Work out and uh, my commentary on Revelation, you, you can see this that you've got in total three and a half years being described here. Now, whether that's uh, we have a chronological description of the whole situation, I don't know, but we do have three and a half years worth of description of what was going to go on in the lead up to AD and because that's all been deferred until. The last days, which we hope and pray we're living in, therefore it all has relevance to to our days. And yet continually the faithful are being encouraged that there is a wonderful system in heaven of angels who are representative of us and of whatever tribulation we are going through here on the earth. So in that sense man is not alone and there is continually these uh, kingdom visions that are slipped in here and there to, to keep the, the believers encouraged to look to the end that there is a light at the end of the tunnel but although we may not understand the process that we are now passing through in the same way as we don't, it seems to me, understand really the book of Revelation yet at the end of all this there is an end and there is the kingdom to, to come Uh, In in verse 9 there, we we see that, we see this great innumerable multitude, which is clearly alluding, I think, to the promises to Abraham. These are the seed of Abraham, and they are out of every nation, of every tribe or kindred, every people, every tongue. And they stand before the Lamb, and they uh, praise him, and say that salvation belongs to, to God and to the Lamb. When we talked about Revelation 5, we commented that there was uh, there's a similar uh, phrase there, talking about the, the redeemed, out of all these different uh, entities, tribes, kindreds, peoples, nations, languages, all praising the Lamb. And I will repeat the, the challenge that I, I found in those verses when we looked at chapter 5, that if at the end, ultimately, at the return of Jesus there will be people saved out of every nation, and not only every nation, but out of every tribe or kindred within that nation, and out of every people, that is, even groups of these uh, tribes that are gathered together as a people, and out of every language group. This uh, this is a very challenging idea, because if the only people that are in fellowship with God are people who... Uh, as we may consider ourselves, have a, a very detailed and correct understanding of the theology of, of the Bible, uh, and of the New Testament in, in particular, then it would seem to me that the coming of the Lord is a long way off. So, from that point of view, we might have to lower in our own minds, to lower the bar, and to accept that if, there's really, if we really hope that Jesus is going to come back right now, or certainly within our lifetime, in our generation, there would have to be people converted from all these different language groups. And there's you know, sort of 5,000 languages uh, in the world. Um, uh, and even within them, there, there's all sorts of uh, sub-languages. There's all manner of tribes. It's no good thinking about, let's say, Brazil. that There are you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of tribes within that country. The same with a country like Zambia in Africa. The same with the countries in Asia. It may not e- easily be, be perceived to people who live outside of those countries, but that really is the the case. And so if representatives from all of those different groups, tribes, nations, language groups, are ultimately going to be saved, then it would seem to me uh, that it cannot be that the only people who are in fellowship with God, who are saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, are uh, people who have a, let's say, a very specific theological understanding, like uh, perhaps our community does. On the other hand, you could say that the gospel must go into all the world, and then shall the end come. The implication could be, could be that the end will come when people from all these language groups, etc., tribes, have at least one representative from each of them who has been converted. And if that is the case, that's the way we wish to see it, then we have a lot of work to do. And of course in the last 20 years God has made this so much easier. For one thing there's the internet that now one can get all over the world pretty well with the internet. For another thing there is the growth in in knowledge of English so that effectively English has become the, the world language so that it's pretty unlikely that out of all these different groups there's not anyone who doesn't know English and also of course the phenomena of personal travel that now you can stand on the streets of London or Sydney or Moscow or Nairobi or whatever, any big city in the world, anywhere in the world and hand out tracts on the street corner and the sort of people who are taking them from you are people from all over the world, quite literally from every nation and tribe and and etc. under the whole heaven there's been this absolute phenomena of migration internationally over long distances, so that actually I think all this happened, and as I say, the internet, growth of English um, so that the gospel can actually go to all these people, but of course that depends on us having a proactive approach to taking it to them so that's a, a challenge to us I mentioned that in, in passing. Um, he sees the 144,000 sealed, and then he sees this great multitude of verse 9. Uh, you could argue that the 144,000 and the great multitude are two snapshots of the same entity, the same reality, or it could be talking about a literal uh, group from the literal uh, children of Israel, the, the Jewish people who uh, will have turned to Christ, and then that is the great multitude of Gentiles. Um, but what I think is significant for us is verse 14 these are they which came out of the great tribulation now I said that what you're reading here in in Revelation 6-9 is full of allusion to um, the the Olivet Prophecy and of course there you get this very clear teaching in Matthew 24-21 that there will be a great tribulation just before the Lord returns And I think we we better just face that, that that is how it is, in what form it will be. Um, We don't know, and there is the implication that that we may not have to go through it. Um, Come, my people, Isaiah 26, enter into your chambers, rest for a little while until this uh, tribulation has gone over you. But it will be there without any question. And why? Why does there have to be a great tribulation just before the Lord comes? It's not just our year when it was prophesied. I mean, pushing the question a stage further back. Why, why, why? Well, if we, for example, we are, let's say, the last generation, and let's say Jesus is going to come back in our lifetimes. I mean, we will be the only generation, then, who will not have tasted of death, who will not have had to go through the death and resurrection process. We'll be in a most unique situation. And will we really, do we really appreciate it? I think not. We therefore will need this tribulation period to, as it were, prepare us. If indeed it lasts for three and a half years, that's taking the 42 months uh, literally and 1290 days etc literally um, then we would be as it were sharing in the ministry of Jesus because Jesus had his ministry for three and a half years we would be led to identify with him and incidentally this Greek word that's translated tribulation is that translated affliction in Colossians one twenty four, talking about the afflictions of Jesus on the cross Which we, Paul says, are to fill up, are to fulfill in our lives. So it's as if we go through the tribulation, the affliction, in order to identify ourselves or be identified with the afflictions of Jesus on the cross. And that is why I would argue that there are verses which imply that the tribulation in one sense is avoidable. In other words, if we have achieved that identification with him in his time of dying, and we've taken bread and wine here to memorialize our commitment to that, then maybe we don't have to go through that. The other point I'd like, like to make is that we talk about Great Tribulation, and the connection with Matthew twenty-four twenty-one implies that this is going to be... Uh, uh, something specific that happens in a, for a period just before the Lord's return. But actually, the same word is used quite often about our experience of life. Through much tribulation, it's the same word. Paul says, we must enter the kingdom. You've got it in the parable of the sower, that tribulation, Mark 4:17, tribulation will arise in the life of the convert uh, for the sake of living out God's word. So let's not think that actually our lives are not that awful in one sense. Quite often when we hear or talk about the sufferings of, let's say, brethren in countries like Iran, Afghanistan, who are tortured and murdered, the the typical reaction is, "Ah, aren't we so blessed? Aren't we so lucky? Uh, Don't we have it easy? Well, I don't really think so, because it, it doesn't seem just to me that some people would suffer more in this life, in order to get to the kingdom, than than other people. The point is that life is a tribulation for absolutely all of us. And I think my exhortation, if you like, would be to not undervalue that. To to not uh, undervalue neither your suffering, your tribulation, nor that of others. It's easy to think some people coast through life and nothing really bad ever seems to happen to them. But you know, there's people I used to think that about until you actually come to realize what's going on in their lives and it's uh, it's absolutely awful some of the things that that go on just it must be like that because they also must have their great tribulation now there's a, a logic in this the only other time this phrase great tribulation occurs is also in Revelation in one of the letters in Revelation 2 verse 22 where Jesus threatens that he will cast Um, the unworthy within the ecclesia at the last day into great tribulation these are the same words and Paul talks about how tribulation, wrath and anguish will be upon the rejected at the day of judgment that's Romans 2 verse 9 and again he uses the word for tribulation about the, uh, the sufferings of the rejected in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 so we have a choice Either go through the tribulation, or you will go through that tribulation when Jesus comes back in being condemned. So the logic of it is, go through the tribulation now for the sake of Jesus, the afflictions of Jesus in in his time of dying, to pick up that cross daily, because actually there is no way out in that sense, that we either are going to go through that in this life, or in the condemnation of of the day of judgment more comfortingly verse 15 we will be before the throne of God and we will serve him day and night in his temple and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more neither will the sun strike them, nor any heat for the lamb which is in the midst of the, the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes so then that to me is the light at the end of the tunnel that God shall dwell among us verse 15 and you you have it at the end of Revelation that we shall see his face Job, I think, looked out of his life of uh, tribulation to to that same end when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last day shall stand upon the earth, whom my eyes shall see for myself and not another. This seeing of God, holiness, Hebrews, without which no man shall see the Lord, is repeatedly this theme, that ultimately we will see him. And it does seem to me, therefore, that God exists as Jesus exists, in a literal form. I know I'm thought to be a bit old-fashioned and all the rest of it in this, but um, I like to think I'm riding a, a new wave, um, you know, Classics Nouveau, sort of going back to uh, to the old ideas uh, um, in a new sort of way. It's, of course, been said, I hear God is spirit, God's not uh, actual, God is not... Um, yeah we're, we're spoiled for words here we under the tyranny of words as shakespeare would say but i think you know what i'm saying god is what i'm saying is that god is corporeal he is real he is actual we are made in his image he therefore exists in some form vaguely similar to our uh, physical exp- uh, appearance now as soon as you start using the word, words like physical and uh, material and concrete as I say people start not sniggering and saying oh yes that, that's just our anthropomorphisms and uh, how can you be so primitive well I hope I'm not so primitive but uh, as I say I, I go around a circle on this one and I, I understand the Bible says God is spirit but it also says our God is a consuming fire doesn't mean the minute you see fire, you say, well, there's God. And God is spirit, he is fire, he is many things, he is love. In the sense that he is manifest in those things. It doesn't mean that he does not have a personal, corporeal, actual existence. And for me, I find it very difficult to have any concept of personal relationship if it is not a person in in whom we and with whom we are in relationship so then I do see a literal element in these ideas that he shall dwell amongst us that the kingdom of God which is now called the kingdom of heaven which is in heaven uh, shall come to earth that God himself shall dwell amongst us and God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes verse 17 and that. um, That Greek word for for to wipe away. You've got it in Acts 3.19. Describing how our sins are blotted out. God shall blot out. Our tears. And I think that. That would imply to me. That the, the tears. Are the tears because of human sin. Why will the rejected weep. And gnash their teeth. Because of their conviction of their own sin. And it's all too late. Anger with themselves. Sorrow for their sin. But. It's as if we will be accepted into God's kingdom. And yet we will need him as it were, and Jesus as it were, to come down off the throne and and give us a cuddle, give us a hug, and, and wipe those tears away. As if to say, look, it's really okay. Because when the Lord comes and we are immortalized by his grace, I don't think everything's just going to change automatically, as it were. You remember that in the parable, the faithful are going to say to Jesus... Well, when did we see you hungry and fed you thirsty and gave you something to drink? It's as if they're saying, Lord, this is a mistaken identity. I, uh, um, I didn't do that. Uh, you are talking to another person. Oh, no. So say, I am right. Then shall every man have praise of God, Paul says. In another picture, we're told that the Lord Jesus himself at the uh, Messianic banquet will come forth and serve us. And everything in us will be crying out, no, no, no. You know, I'm the guest at the bottom of the table. And who is he to come and serve me? So there will almost be this um, almost incomprehension, I think, uh, which will require a process of interaction from the father and son to kind of, as it were, persuade us of, of his grace that this is for real. And that, of course, is quite how it should be. Because the parables seem to imply that it is those who are uh, overconfident, who are like, Lord, Lord, we did many wonderful works for you, now come on, cough up, give us the reward. Those will not be in the kingdom. And it is those who genuinely consider that, of myself, I should not be. It is those who will be. Uh, and so it's understandable that there would therefore have to be this process, as it were, of, of gentle and friendly persuasion. So I find that a, a wonderful uh, Vision and when we come to look at Revelation 21 and 22 we'll find I believe something similar there well the other point that I'd like to make is about prayer that there's a lot of talk here uh, about prayer and, and the power of it um, you've got in chapter 8 the incense ascending and then what happens when the incense ascends Trumpets sound, angels start running around the place, uh, things are thrown down from, earth, from heaven to earth, uh, there's huge things happening on earth that affect huge numbers of people, um, sun, moon and stars, symbolic or, or not, are, are darkened, etc. All these things happen in response to the incense of prayer. The point is that prayer somehow traverses so powerfully the if you like, or look at it this way zillions of kilometers which there are between God and man and why, this is not too childish a question, but why is space so big why is cosmos existence so huge, I mean why doesn't God live just one kilometer above the surface of the earth up in the sky you know, why the scale and I think one reason for the scale of it all, for the, the vastness of it all is to impress upon us the wonder of it all, that we, as little things down here on earth, through prayer can trigger things like this up in heaven, because God is that sensitive to, to human prayer, that it leads to angels up in heaven coming to earth, pouring out bowls, blowing trumpets, etc., all because of this incense going up to, to heaven. Then verse 8 in response to that incense uh, a great mountain is cast into the sea now that must connect with the way that Jesus in the gospels in mark 11:23 says that if you have faith you can throw mountains into the sea but here an angel does it and the point of the connection i i think is that through our prayer we really can trigger Angelic action from heaven. It's incredible that this can and will and does happen. And by the way, talking about mountains being cast into the sea, the the other uh, connection which I'm sure Jesus must have had in mind when he talks, both here, because I mean, this is Jesus uh, talking. and, and in, in, the, in Mark 11:23, when he talks about uh, your prayer can get mountains cast into the sea. He must have had in mind Psalm 46, verse 2, which says that therefore we will not fear even though mountains be cast into the sea. Putting all that together, I think the teaching would be we will not be frightened of the result of our prayer. And it can be. I mean, if you really believe in prayer, and if for you prayer is, um, is not just an insurance policy, a well, you know, this is like a wish list, God, you know, and, well, never know, you might get something out of it or not, but like an insurance policy, um, a wish list that a child may draw up for their birthday, What well, what well, present you want for your birthday, okay, I'll write you ten things, uh, thinking the kid thinks, yeah, I might get one of them. But this, this is not how prayer should be. If we're really praying according to God's will. So that his will has become our will. You know how John says if we ask for anything according to his will. He hears us. Yet he also records Jesus saying that if his words abide in us. We shall ask whatever we will. You shall ask what you will. And it shall be done unto you. But of course the idea is if my words abide in you. Because the word of God is in that sense the will of God. So then. If we really are praying for the right things, we should pray, as Jesus again says, believing that you will receive. And I think if if we really take that on board, we'd be a lot slower about what we prayed for. Because we would realize that, you know, you might get it. Uh, Not you might get it, you will get it and so that's I think the, the point of this lovely set of ideas here that we will not fear even though mountains are cast into the sea mountains get cast into the sea that was Psalm 46.2 uh, mountains get cast into the sea Mark 11.23 by prayer and how does that work if you like uh, mechanically Revelation 8.8 uh, 8 here says that that happens because angels in response to prayer, the incense cast mountains into, into the sea and so We are, in essence, in the position of God's people at the time of Revelation. And all these things are equally true for us. And by way of just bringing our minds back to what we're here for, which is to to break bread, I would like to take you back to the uh, thoughts we had on verse 14 of chapter 7. That we will have come out of the great tribulation, and that is the same word as the afflictions of Christ, Colossians one twenty four, that life in Christ, in one sense, is traumatic. And if you don't feel that, then in a sense, you know, are you living out, fulfilling in yourself, as Colossians one twenty four says, the tribulations of Christ? and I I like to believe we are Uh, and insofar as we are I mean yes life will be traumatic but it's the great paradox that if we suffer with him we shall also live with him or as Paul puts it in uh, in Corinthians he says that although we, we suffer with him we die with him in this life yet even now in this mortal flesh the power of his resurrection life is made manifest